All right. Good morning, everybody. Thank you. I'm not a pastor, but that's very kind of you. <clears throat> that's a perfect segue, actually. My name is Peter Carlson. I am not a pastor here, but I'm actually the, uh, the worship leader here at Hiawatha Church. But uh, every now and then, they let the, uh, the overseers uh, come on up and give a sermon. So this is, uh, this is my week. Um, our main lead pastor, Chris Wachter, has taken a sabbatical over the summer. And so uh, they're giving, uh, giving those of us in the, uh, the bullpen a little bit of run. So uh, that's me today. <clears throat> Um, we're in a series right now in the book of Matthew, but before I get into that, I just want to do a little introduction because I, I know a lot of you, but there's probably even more of you that I don't know that I haven't met before. So let me tell you a little bit about myself if you want to go to the next slide. Like I said, I'm Peter Carlson. I got two boys. That's them there. Um, they're really buff, just so you know. Uh, <laughs> Elliot and Zachary. Um, Elliot is uh, four and a half and Zachary will be three next month, which is kind of crazy. And they're both in that, that stage of asking why to everything, both of them at the same time. And uh, it's awesome because I'm like, wow, you guys really like to learn, which is great, but please stop asking why. Uh, Elliot will say, Dad, can I have a cookie after dinner? And I'll say, yeah, sure. Why? <laughs> That's crazy. You don't need to ask why for that. That's my wife, my wife Becky down there. We've, uh, we've been married, it'll be nine years in September, uh, worship leader at Hiawatha Church and uh, uh, during the week, I work at Aveda, huh? That's pretty cool. So I'm a, I'm a microbiologist at Aveda in the quality assurance department. So uh, anytime you use the Aveda eye cream and you don't get pink eye, <clears throat> when, you, when you go to the Aveda store at the Mall of America and they offer you a cup of tea and you, uh, you don't get E. coli from that, you're welcome. It's good. Yeah. So, uh, so that's me. Um, yeah. So, and today we're going we're gonna to keep going in the book of Matthew. So uh, if you've been with us a little bit, you know, you know that we've just kind of been going through the book of Matthew uh, front to back. We're, uh, we're getting towards the end here, but we're not quite there yet. Uh, today we're in uh, chapter 21, and uh, by luck of the draw, I got 23 whole verses, so we've got, uh, we got some ground to cover. So we're going to go right ahead and get to it. Uh, sermon today we're, we're calling The Rejection of the Cornerstone, and I think that'll make sense uh, as we go along, um, as we talk about the cornerstone. But before we read the passage, I want to give you a little bit of a little bit of orientation about where we are in the storyline. We're in what they call Holy Week. It's the week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. So over the last couple of weeks, we've covered a few events. Uh, we covered the triumphal entry. That's when Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem. He's been doing his ministry all a bunch of different places um, throughout Israel, but not in Jerusalem yet. He's kind of been making his way there. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the day when he came into the city. You probably know that story. He came in riding on a donkey, and people were celebrating and waving branches um, and welcoming into the, him into the city. So that was on Sunday. Then on Monday, um, he hadn't been to the temple yet, like the central hub of the city. So Monday, he goes to the temple. It's kind of a big deal. Everyone's like, okay, Jesus is going to the temple. What's going to happen? And, uh, and he causes basically a riot by kicking out all of these people who are uh, cheating people and uh, uh, exchanging money and selling things and basically lining their own pockets in the pockets of the chief priests. Jesus goes in there and uh, kicks them all out. He doesn't stand there and, and do any teaching that day. That's his main job for the day um, on Monday. So now here we are on Tuesday. So I want you to just to get a little bit of a picture because Jesus is doing stuff in Jerusalem, but he's actually staying with friends outside, like in a suburb of Jerusalem called Bethany. So each day he comes back into the city to do stuff, and then he goes back out to his friend's house, and then he comes back into the city uh, to do stuff. So now it's Tuesday. He's going to enter the temple. He's going to teach this time, and he's going to confront the leaders and the teachers there, which is what we're going to talk about today. But just a little bit of foreshadowing, the next day he's going to teach in the temple some more. The leaders are going to like 
plot to kill him intensely. Um, that's Wednesday. Thursday's the Last Supper. Friday, he's going to die. So he has just a few dozen hours of his life left when this happens um, on Tuesday in the temple. So being that we have a long passage, we're going to kind of take it section by section. So first of all, let's read um, 21, 23 through 27. It'll be up here on the screen. It's in your uh, worship folders or grab a pew Bible or a device of some kind um, and follow along as we go. So starting in verse 23 here. And when he, Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question and if you tell me the answer, then I will also I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they, this is the leaders now, and they discussed it among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. God, thank you for, for this story. Thank you for your word uh, written on a page, a window into your mind, into the story of what Jesus did. Pray that we would take this, this teaching to heart today. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would soften us if we need to be softened um, and that you would bring us to a place where, where we can encounter the truth of your gospel this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, this is it. So this is the big confrontation. Jesus is in the temple. He's meeting the religious leaders, the top guys from the temple, the upstart from Galilee. It's the, it's the big one, right? It's, this is punch-out time. So you got, you got the chief priests. They're, they're in charge, right? They've, sure, the Romans are in charge of Israel right now, but within the nation of Israel, the chief priests and the religious leaders are the big dogs. They run the nation right now as far as the Jewish religion uh, goes. And then you got Jesus. He's basically, to, if, you, if you put yourself in their shoes, Jesus is a punk kid from a punk town who's making his way into their temple. And, uh, oh, and don't forget, the day before, he came in there and kicked a bunch of people out and caused a huge scene. He was whipping people and uh, he was taking away a little bit of their extra income. And so, Today, on Tuesday, the very next day, Jesus comes walking into the temple, and you got to see, like, the leaders, like, it's that guy, it's that guy, and they run over there, like, hold on, hold on, before you do anything else, we have a question for you, and here's their big question. By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Basically, who do you think you are, exactly, and what exactly do you think you're doing here, and who exactly gave you the authority to do these things? So authority is a big deal to these people, okay? Because they, they feel like the, they have authority from God to lead the people in spiritual matters. Many of them have been doing it since they were kids because, you know, they're from the tribe. Their father was a chief priest. He raised him up. Now he's a chief priest. Um, there's a lot of just structure to this. And if you are a teacher, you sat under another teacher. And so when it was your turn to preach, if it was me, I'd come up. So as you know, Chris Wachter has told me these things, and now I'm telling you these things. And so Chris Wachter, to me, to you, it's... it's it's real, right? So there has to be some sort of a chain going on. Authority is a big deal. And nothing should be brand new, by the way. 
if you, if you hear something in church that you've never heard before to these people, that's like, no, don't listen to that. We want to hear the same thing over and over again. We want to go back to the scripture and be like, that's exactly written here. It's exactly what they're saying. It makes total sense. And if, if he tells me something I haven't heard before, then I don't want to listen to him at all. So that's what they're thinking. When Jesus comes in, they're saying, I need to put you in my box here. So who taught you? Do I know him? And if I don't, then I don't care about what you're saying. Besides the fact that you're a 33-year-old kid in their eyes, because they're, you know, all of these older guys, um, you haven't been in the temple courts this whole time like we have, when also you're from Galilee, which is just this backwater fishing town up north that, that nasty people come out of and, and dumb people. So they want to know, who do you think you are? What are you doing here? Now Jesus, being extremely smart, um, spins this a little differently. So here's his response. Let's read this again, because this is just so great. Jesus says, I will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And his question is, remember John the Baptist? The baptism of John, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from man? So he's saying, I'll answer your question if you answer one of mine first. And they're saying, okay, this is a fairly, this is a fairly common thing that teachers would do, like, how about this question? Yeah, but how about this question? Oh, but how about this question? So they're doing a little back and forth here. So... So Jesus asked this question, and so that they, they huddle up, and they say, okay, if we say from God, we're in trouble, because he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? Because you're admitting his teachings from God. But if we say from man, there's all these people standing around us in the temple courts who did believe John. They think he was a prophet, because John's preaching was in the mold of these Old Testament prophets, right? You know, he's, he's out in the wilderness, he's just kind of crying out his message to whoever's there. He's dressed strangely. His message is repent, return to God. This is, this is all very, very similar to the Old Testament prophets. So, so they come back and they say, we don't really know. So Jesus then says, well, I'm not going to answer you. Because by saying you don't know, you're proving that you're not even equipped to judge this issue of authority. If you can't judge the authority of John based on what he was preaching, how are you going to even react to me telling you what authority I'm preaching on? John came and said, I am telling you the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is repent, prepare the way for the kingdom of God, prepare the way for Jesus. If you can't judge that, how am I supposed to think you're going to fairly judge me on whatever I'm going to say? So I'm not going to answer. It's pointless for me to answer. You're, you're pointless by even asking me that question. And the other interesting thing to think about here is before they answer him, they weigh the two options. As I mean, they clearly don't know, but they say, should we say this or should we say this? They don't care about which one is true. They care about which one's going to make us look good to the people around us. And they come to the conclusion, well, neither one is going to make us look good to the people around us. So the chief thing that they're concerned about is, what are the crowds going to think of us? You see a window into their heart right now. This is how they operate all the time. How am I going to look the most righteous? How am I going to get the people to think, wow, you are really something else. I admire you. Please lead me spiritually as far as you want me to go. So when they realize that they're not going to be able to look good to the people around them no matter what, they just say, we're out. I don't know. You win. I, I don't know. And Jesus just says, okay, well, I'm not going to answer then. Have fun. I, I'm not going to answer that question. I, uh, we have one of those, like, 
screens at work where they put up announcements and stuff, and the, cor the corner of the screen always has like an inspirational quote of the day, and usually they're incredibly cheesy. But this week there was one that was up there from, from Anonymous, he writes a lot of stuff, who said, you don't have to attend every argument you're invited to. I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Like, I'm not going to attend this argument because there's no point to me even talking to you about this stuff because you're clearly showing me that you're incapable of judging the issue of authority at all based on the fact that you couldn't judge John. How are you supposed to judge me either? However, even though he's not going to answer their question, he's not done with them because he's going to launch into two parables right now that illustrate a bit about the point that they were trying to make with him, illustrate a bit of his authority, but at the same time, He's going to start digging on them a little bit and trying to push them into a direction of understanding exactly who they are and the state of their heart. So his interaction with them is not done, even though he's not going to answer this, that question of theirs. So the first parable, and this one is actually only found in Matthew, is a parable of two sons. So let's look at that, 20 to 32. So Jesus starts out, what do you think? So he's talking to these leaders. What do you think? Here's the situation. A man had two sons. He went to the first son and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he, the son, answered him, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind, and he did go. Now, when he, the father, went to the other son and said the same, Go work in my vineyard today. He said the same, and he, the other son, answered him, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? So that's Jesus' question. Which of those two sons did the will of his father? And the leaders said, they said the first. Clearly. And then Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So let's look at these two sons for a second here. He's got two sons. There's a father. He's got two sons. So the first son says to his question, please go and work in the vineyard today. The first son says, no, I will not. I will not go to work in the vineyard. The father moves on. But afterwards, the son says, that was wrong. I will go and work in the vineyard. And the second son says, oh, yes, I am on my way. I got it. I'm going. I'm going right now. But he doesn't go. It's a lie. He lies to his father about his willingness to go. So first thing I want you to understand about these two sons is both of them begin the story in a state of disobedience. It's just a different kind of disobedience between the two. The first one has a very verbal and affronted disobedience. The father comes and says, will you please go out and work? And he says, no, I will not. I'm staying here. That's one. And the second son, he goes and says, will you please go work? And the son's like, yes, sir, I will. But he doesn't go. He just kicks back and stays there. So his disobedience is lying. He's, he's saying the right things, but he's not doing what is asked of him. So before we go any further, I just want to clarify one thing. An interpretation of this parable, we need to understand what is the work that the father is asking. If we're going to suss this out into a real world of what, what does this parable mean, because we're going to get to who the two sons are in a second, but you probably already know. But I want to establish that the work of God that he's asking of two sons is belief. 
The work that he's asking for is belief. And we get that from verse 32 that we saw a second ago because when, when Jesus is kind of responding to, their, to them saying the first son is the more obedient, he says, John came to you in the, way, in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. So the work that he's asking for is belief. If you want to know what God wants from us, it's belief. It's belief in Jesus. It's belief in the gospel. That is the work. So, so don't let your, your minds go different ways on the map of, you know, God, God told the one son, like, go out and convert ten people or anything like that, because that's not what this parable is getting at. Jesus clearly says that the, the work is belief, okay? So let's look at these two sons individually. Let's actually look at the second one first, okay? So son, son number two, he says he will work, but that's, that's a lie because he does not go. This is the religious leaders, the ones that Jesus is talking to face-to-face at this very moment. The religious leaders are outwardly righteous. Remember I said, they're so concerned with their outward appearance to the people around them. Their only concern is, how, how can I appear righteous? But inwardly, they are, they are refusing to believe Jesus. They did not believe John. John came and said, God has sent me with a message. My message is, you're all sinners and you need to repent because Jesus is coming. And he didn't know about Jesus at the time, but he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Please, repent. Turn away from your sin. Prepare your hearts for Jesus to walk in. And the religious leaders of the time did not believe him. They did not believe that message. But again, when they're confronted with this question of was John the Baptist from God or from men, they won't say from men and they won't say from God. They're concerned about this outward appearance. So they're, they're saying to God, we believe, we're serving you, we're doing everything that you ask. But inside, that's a lie because they are not believing. If we look back into the Old Testament a bit, to the book of Isaiah 29, God talks about the same epidemic of unbelief going on in the nation of Israel years and years and years before Jesus. This has been going on. And God gives Isaiah something to say to the people of Israel that applies to this situation as well. So this is from Isaiah 29, 13 and 14. We're going to start just with 13. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, so hold that thought for a second. So Jesus is saying, they draw near to me with their mouth. They say all the right things. They honor me with their lips. They're big talkers. But their hearts are far from me. And get this, their fear of me is nothing more than a commandment taught by men. This is exactly what the religious leaders of the day are doing to the people of Israel. They're saying, look, it's all about the commandments. It's all about getting this list right. That's what it's about. You know about fear of God, respecting God, believing in God. It's about following the rules. That is what it is. So they're boiling belief in God all the way down to just commandments taught by men. That's all it is. So this is the judgment that, that Isaiah is, is bringing to the people from God. And then it says, therefore. So if you hold that for a second. So if, if you're sitting there and you're Isaiah and you're writing all this down and God says, their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, you know God is mad. So he says, therefore, you're like, okay, let me, let me just get, I'm probably going to have to get red ink and there's going to be a lot of flames coming in a second here. 
this is going to be really bad, isn't it? It is. What's God going to, is he just going to say, so the kingdom of Israel is going to be scooped out of the earth and thrown into the sun? Or what, what's coming? What is God going to say? I, I, this is a little bit scary. So verse 14 comes along and it says, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. With wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. So God's reaction to this disobedience of the heart is to say, well, I'm going to continue to display my glory. I'm going to continue to pour out my gospel on them. I'm going to do wonderful things among them. I'm going to do so many wonderful things among them that their wise men will have no idea what's going on. They're going to look dumb. And I mean, when you really take this and follow its trajectory forward, God is saying, I'm going to send Jesus to these people in the nation of Israel. That's what I'm going to do. Jesus is going to physically walk the earth of the nation of Israel. He's going to do amazing and wonderful things. And he's going to make the wisdom of the wise men look foolish, and their discerning men will, will look like they have no idea what's going on. Which is interesting, because just a minute ago, when Jesus asked them a question, their response was, I don't know. These are the smartest people in the nation of Israel. They know all of the scriptures. They, they can basically quote the Old Testament at this point. And their response to a question from a, a 33-year-old guy from a podunk town is, eh, I, I don't know. And I mean, think, think, about, what the, think about what the people around at, as this exchange is happening. Think about what they must be thinking about the religious leaders. Jesus asks them a question. They huddle up. They talk about it for a while. They come back and they go, I don't know. And the people around them be like, whoa, I have never heard them say those three words before, ever. I don't know. I want to hear more about what Jesus has to say then if they, are, if they can't answer these, these questions. So, okay, so that's, that's that one son who's, who's talking like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be obedient to you. I'm heading out there. And he doesn't go. Now, the other son, the first son that the father talks to, he's the one who says, I will not work. No, I'm staying here. Just no. Well, this is, as Jesus says, as Jesus says, this is the tax collectors and the prostitutes. They're living in blatant sin, verbal, affronting sin to God, and they're not ashamed of it. They're not ashamed to say to God, no. I am going to cheat people, and I don't care who knows it. Everybody knows the tax collectors steal money. That's what I do. I'm doing it. Prostitutes, I'm living my life. And that's that. But many of them have now accepted Jesus. Many of them believed John and repented and prepared their hearts, and Jesus came, and they believed. Many of them have believed because of Jesus, interacting with them on a very personal level. That's repentance. So they begin with this just blatant disobedience. But after the fact, they repent of that and they come to Jesus and believe. So then, again, the conclusion here that Jesus says is, truly I say to you, tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you, religious leaders. Because when John came to you in the way of righteousness, you didn't believe him, but they did. And even when you saw it, now what is it? He's talking about John the Baptist's ministry here, right? And he says, you didn't believe him. And even when you saw it, even when you saw me, who John was talking about, John who said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's here. You saw me, we're talking right now. You still are not changing your minds and believing. So Jesus is saying, 
Listen, religious leaders, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Believe. I'm standing right in front of you. I'm teaching you about John the Baptist's ministry. You're not getting it. You're still not getting it. What's it going to take? So belief is the word that God asks of us, the work that God asks of us to do. And Jesus is talking to them about that right here with this, with this parable of these two sons. So that's an indictment on them for sure. He's, he's saying the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going in ahead of you because they believe and you do not believe. So that had to be pretty, pretty, pretty much a dig to them too, to think about that. But Jesus is not done because now we're going to the second parable and this is where things get a little bit dicier for them. Um, and this is, the second parable is the parable of the tenants. So let's read that, starting in 33. And Jesus says, Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, and killed another and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. And finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, now this is the religious leaders, they said to him, well, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. <laughs> and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So let's look at this, let's look at this parable for a second. Let's break it down. So this is about a rental agreement. It's pretty common in those days, and actually it's pretty common these days as well. There's a guy, he owns a vineyard. He, he puts in a lot of work to get the vineyard set up for business, and then he rents that vineyard to a family or a team of people who will run the vineyard, um, farm it, you know, harvest it, uh, get the, send it to the market, get the money, and then the arrangement is you give me a cut of the profits because I actually own the land and, and you're doing the work. You'll get some of it, but you've got to give me my percentage because I'm the real owner. So let's just go ahead and put up the legend here the key to this parable. So the landowner is God, if you didn't get that. The vineyard itself is uh, the nation of Israel. And uh, if you're wondering where, how we know that, um, I don't have this on screen, but let me just quick read another passage from Isaiah. This is, this is God talking, and he, he's going to use vineyard terms. And you can almost draw exact parallel lines from uh, Isaiah 5 to this parable. Um, so God says, let me, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines, and he built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. 
What more is there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? And when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and the briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And then here's the key in verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So Old Testament verbiage here, he's saying, look, the vineyard is the nation of Israel, and the renters, the tenants of this vineyard that I'm renting it out to are you, the religious rulers. And the messengers and servants that, uh, that God sends are Old Testament prophets coming and saying, listen, you're in a state of unbelief. You need to give, the, you need to give God his, his due. You need to yield this crop. And by the way, Old Testament prophet was a tough job. You get drafted for that job, by the way. God comes and says, hey, you're going to be a prophet. And you, you see some of the reaction of these prophets, like Jonah's like, uh, what now? I'm, I'm out of here. No, that's no. That's no. I'm not doing it. Even Isaiah, when, when God came and said, Isaiah, I want you to be my prophet and speak for me, Isaiah's first response is, for how long? <laughs> for how long? If you look back and read through some of that stuff, you'll see it was a tough job. And in the, in the parable, those, peop- those servants were, were severely abused. So the son that God sends is Jesus. Clearly it's Jesus. And then uh, new tenants that they talk about at the end, true believers. Go in and, and yield the crop, true believers. Um, so if we apply this to the, to the parable, we see, okay, so there's God. He owns the nation of Israel. He says, I've, I've built this, I have this land. It's the promised land. I want to put people in it. I want it to yield believers that will give glory to me and worship me. I'm going to rent it out to some people to do that work for me. It's going to be uh, the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. I'm going to tell them all that they need to do to point people to me. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set them up with everything that they need, do most of the hard work. So all they have to do is bring in the harvest. And they don't do it. They, uh, they cheat God. They are extremely disobedient with what they've been given. So God says, well, I'm going to send some messengers to remind them of what they're supposed to be doing. I'm going to send some prophets. Uh, well, they beat up and kill those guys. And then God says, I'm going to send my very own, my only son to them. So Take a second and get a window into the emotional mind of God now. I'm a parent. I've got two kids. I was thinking about this this week. So I, I say to my son, will you please go and talk to them, and they'll respect you because you are my son. And they murder him. They throw him outside the farm so, so they don't get blood on their, on their stuff inside. They throw him outside and murder him. So get yourself in the mindset of God here. My son has been murdered by these people in my vineyard. Which is why when he, he says the question, so what, what would the owner do when he gets there? And they're feeling that wrath too. And they say, he will go there and he will kill those dudes. He will kick them out. He will kill them. He'll put them to a miserable death and he'll find someone else to do the work. He'll do it right. So you got to feel that that vitriol of God to say, my only child, my son, has been murdered by these people. Yeah, and then they say, well, yeah, that's what God would, that's what the landowner should do. That, that would be the thing to do. Okay. So 
you see the irony here is that the, they're implicating themselves by saying that because they are the renters of that vineyard. They're self-implicating by saying they should be put to death for doing that sort of a thing. And uh, putting someone in a position of self-implication is, is, a, is a pretty, pretty uh, tough place to put them. Um, in 2 Samuel, there's a, this happens again where Nathan is a prophet, David is the king, and you know the story of David. He sees a woman bathing on the roof across the street from him, and he says, I want her, uh, and I don't care what it takes, and he takes her for his own, and then someone's like, by the way, she's married, and he's like, yeah, kill her husband, send him to war, put him on the front lines, then pull everybody else back, he'll die, it'll be good to go. And so David, this godly king, has done all of this stuff, kept it secret for most people, and then Nathan the prophet, God tells him, go to David, we got to talk about a few things. So, so... 2 Samuel 12, just read this for a second. So the Lord sent Nathan to David, and Nathan came to him and said, I got a story for you. There were two men in a certain city. One was rich, the other was poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. He, it used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there was a traveler to the rich man, and he, the rich man, was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, that man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore that lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you're the man. You did it. And it wasn't a lamb. It was a human being. It was a person. You did that. You were the king. You could have had anything you wanted. And then he goes on and, and just kind of recaps everything that David did. Like, I know all of what you did. This is what you did. You're the man. And then in verse 13, David has a chance to respond. And his response is a good one. And he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And then God's response through Nathan is, Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. That's weighty. David has just realized, whoa, I suddenly feel the weight of this sin. It's like I saw it from a third-person point of view of all that I have done. And I am moved to repent. And God has mercy on him. Now, there, it's not that there are zero consequences for this, because it turns out um, Bathsheba, the woman, is pregnant. And Nathan says, that child is going to die. That's part of the, that's part of the punishment for this sin, but just so you know, God has put away your sin, and you will not die. And there's a lot more backstory to this that I don't have time to get into, but the previous king, Saul, sinned against God, and God took his spirit away from Saul and just abandoned him to basically damnation in, in this world. And David has that in his mind, saying, I'm out. God's going to kick me out. This is it. I've, it's irreparable between me and God. But Nathan says, no, it's not. It's not. So... David is a broken man here, but David is not a crushed person. He's not beyond repair, which gets at the end here where Jesus is responding to this story and he starts talking about the cornerstone. And he says, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. God has done this. And then in verse 44, which is a little bit cryptic, he says, the one, on, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So there's two ways that we interact with this cornerstone. And one is, we're crushed beyond repair. And the second one is, we're broken 
We see our sin. We see it maybe from a bird's eye view, from the Spirit. This is our sin. This is how serious it is. And we can be moved to repent like David did. So put yourself again in God's shoes. Would he let the tenants continue in that? Would Nathan come to David and say, look, David, you did, you did some bad stuff, and I think, I think that you shouldn't do that anymore? And if David says, no, would Nathan be like, all right, it's your life. Sorry I, sorry I imposed. Or if the landowner comes to the vineyard at the end after they kill his son and like, hey, look, guys, uh, I get it. You don't want to give me the profit, and uh, I'm okay. So just, you know, I'll see you later. I'll find a different place. What kind of a God would that be? First of all, to say he's just going to let it continue, I don't think that would be a very powerful and just God. So when people say, hey, how can a loving God have judgment for people? How can he send people to hell? Well, put yourself in his mind here where people have murdered his son. I think the question should be, how can God even forgive something like that? How can God tell David, I have put away your sin and you will not die. How can he do that? That's, that, is, that is a crazy form of love and forgiveness. So let's talk for just a second about this, this idea of the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is talking about Jesus. He is being rejected by these religious leaders and he's foreshadowing that he is the most important stone um, out of all of them. Um, going back to Daniel chapter 2, Daniel talks a little bit about the stone. He has, a, he has an interaction with the king. The king has had a dream and, and Daniel comes to interpret it and in this, guy's, in this king's dream he has seen this massive amazing idol made of all of these different materials um, and then something happens to it in his dream and Daniel comes in and starting in verse 34 here he uh, interprets this dream. So he, I'm going to pick it up uh, when the cornerstone appears. So Daniel says, as you looked a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image, the idol, on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all these pieces, all together were broken in pieces, and not just pieces. They became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So this is an Old Testament picture of what it's like, this cornerstone is like, right? It destroys the idols of sin, of death, of pride. It destroys those things. Jesus destroys those things on the cross. But that's not the end. That stone becomes the most important stone. In here, that stone becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. The entire earth becomes a mountain in this guy's dream. And that happens at the resurrection. If you go to the end of Matthew, this is a little spoiler alert if you haven't read all the way to the end yet. Jesus comes to the disciples. He's standing on the mountain, and the disciples come to him. Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. And what Jesus says is, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The rejected cornerstone has become a mountain that has filled this whole earth. All the authority is mine right now. It's done at that point. It's done. The cornerstone has become a mountain. Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And then if we want to take it from the other side of things, let's go to Acts chapter 4. Peter and John, this is after Jesus has died, been resurrected, been resurrected and he's ascended. Peter and John, the two of the disciples, are doing some ministry. They heal a man, and the religious leaders see it happen, and they put Peter and John in prison for it. And the next day, they bring them out of prison, and, uh, and they have a question for them. 
And the question is, and it's not on the screen here, but the question they asked him is, by what authority did you do that? Which is fascinating because that's the question that they asked Jesus weeks before. So they're asking Peter and John, okay, what authority, what authority do you have to heal someone? Excuse me? Who are you that you're going to heal someone? And this is what Peter says. Now, this is fantastic. This is going to draw it all together. So Peter stands up. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man had been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is in no one else. So Peter goes and says, remember when you, maybe even these specific people, were talking to Jesus before and he talked about the cornerstone? How about I just interpret what all that means? Okay, Jesus is the cornerstone that you rejected. You're the builders and uh, he is now the cornerstone. In case you didn't get that before. So Peter says, I healed, John and I healed this person on the authority of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, which goes back to the original question. If Jesus had deemed those people worthy to get the answer to their question, Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Do you know what the real answer is? My authority. My authority. I am the Son of God. That's the answer to your question. But it would have been pointless to give them that answer because they don't, they don't get it. But that's the answer on Jesus' authority. And later he'll say, all authority is his. And then just a little stinger at the end here. So after all of this, chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables. They perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Again, they're right back where they started. All they care about is what the people around them are thinking about them. That's all they care about. And so they're like, we got we to gotta kill this guy. Yeah, I know that he just told a story about us wanting to kill him, but we got to kill this guy. That's their reaction. Jesus just predicted his death, and then they said, yeah, let's, uh, let's kill that guy. That's a good idea. All they're concerned about is the outward. They are that son who says, yes, I believe, but that is a lie. They only are concerned with their verbal and outward appearance of righteousness and not about the heart. And they're completely missing Jesus and rejecting the cornerstone. So just a... Three things here in conclusion. Three application points for you guys. First of all, I want you to take away from this, I want you to be able to see God, God the Father, as a wronged and grieved Father and yourself as the guilty one. And that's a hard place to put yourself, but I want you to, to put yourself there. The Spirit will convict us of sin, and that is a good thing, but I want you to view God as a Father whose child, his only child, was killed. And actually, this picture right here is a, is a guy named Hector Black. And um, I heard about his story um, on a podcast. And I'm going to post this on the table on Facebook later because I think it would be well worth 20 minutes of your time this week to listen to his story. But he's a, he's a man who, when uh, him and his wife were younger, they had three daughters and they, they uh, adopted a young girl. I think she was eight when they adopted her, raised her as their own. Uh, she thrived in their house. She was a, um, a wonderful girl grew up to be a wonderful woman and uh, moved out of their house and they, they moved on and they were farmers and she uh, was murdered. A man broke into her house looking for, 
looking to steal things to sell to get drug money. And through the course of events, he found her there and um, assaulted and murdered her. Um, and they, they caught him. And they, the authorities contacted Hector Black and his wife, and they said, you know, we have very bad news. Your, your adopted daughter, Patricia, ha, uh, has been murdered. And we have the guy. And Hector's first reaction as he tells the story is, electric chair. I want him in the electric chair, and I want to see it happen. I cannot believe that that person, my, my own daughter, and, and later he hear, he'll, he'll learn that while she was tied up, she was telling him, you need to get help for this problem, and you don't need to do this, and you seem like someone who, who could be a, a good person. Why are you doing this? And it's just so unjust. So Hector has this, and he's meditating on it, and he feels like God is telling him not to seek the death penalty for this person. But not only that, he felt like God was giving him a piece to say, you need to forgive the man that did this to your daughter. And he wrote it out in a uh, statement for the closing arguments of this guy's trial. And he stood up and he had a statement to read. And one of the things he said was to this guy, he said, I don't know, but I, I don't know if I've forgiven you, but I don't hate you. I hate what you've done. And everybody in the courtroom, and even the people who do this podcast, we're talking about this story, and they say, so just so you know, this story makes no sense to us. We can't comprehend what's going to happen, what you're going to hear in this story. We don't understand it at all. But Hector stood up in the courtroom and said, I, I don't know if I've forgiven you, but I don't hate you. I just, I only hate what you've done. And he said, I want, I want you to turn your life around. And the man who did this was moved, and he, was, he cried, and he apologized, and, um, and he was sentenced to life in prison. And that's not even the end of the story, because Hector Black had so much forgiveness within his heart that he himself didn't quite understand, that he started writing letters to the man in prison. They basically became pen pals. They wrote letters about what happened. They wrote letters about... Uh, the Bible. They wrote letters about going to church. He learned all about this guy's life before. And basically, when they asked him, are you guys, are you guys friends now? Hector said, yeah, we are. We're friends now. And he's like, I don't know how it happened. I don't know. But we're friends now. I'm friends with the man who brutally murdered my daughter. That's the kind of God that we serve, a God who's wronged and grieved. We're the guilty ones, but God comes to us and says, I don't hate you. I hate what you've done. I hate what you've done to me. But I want to offer you forgiveness. I want to turn you around. So I'm going to post that. I really encourage you to find it on the table or on Facebook. Take 20 minutes this week and listen to that and just see a representation of the gospel. See the gospel story in that because it's, it's phenomenal. Second thing for conclusion here is don't be like that son. Don't be like the son who, who says, yes, I'll go, but doesn't go. Do not reject Jesus. Do not reject the cornerstone. We all begin as sinners. It's either outward, very blatant sinners or secret sinners in our hearts. We all start there. But be like the son who starts there and turns around and says, no, I'm not going to do that. I want to repent. I want to go to the field. I was wrong. And after that, build your life on the cornerstone that is Jesus. 
Place, build your life on that cornerstone. Place that stone first in the building. That's the point of a cornerstone. The first stone that you lay at the corner determines how those two walls, those first two walls, how straight they're going to be. If you have a crooked cornerstone there, the building is going to be terrible. So put Jesus there first. It could be that you already have something else there and you might have to do some teardown before you put him there. That's very possible. You might have to remove elements of your life that you're letting take the place of Jesus so that Jesus can be there. That's very possible. But build your life on the cornerstone of Jesus because salvation is in no one else and forgiveness is offered to us through no one else but Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word today. Thank you for allowing us to see ourselves as in need of forgiveness and redemption. But thank you, God, that, that you are someone who offers that to us. Thank you that you do not hate us and reject us outright. That you don't come to us full of judgment, but that you come to us to do signs and wonders. That you send Jesus to us. That you send the gospel to us. I pray that we would be like the people that see our sin that it would be revealed to us in its ugliness and that we would be moved to repent and turn towards you and find that forgiveness that is almost incomprehensible, but that we would find it, that we would be blessed by it and that we would take that forgiveness, that gospel, that we would place that stone as our cornerstone and build our entire lives around you always. pray these things in your name.